Psalm 133. This is the inerrant word from a God who loves you. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Father God, we come to Your Word with trembling, we come with hope, we come with encouragement, because we know that if You are for us, who can be against us? And I pray that as we examine this Word, that You would be uh, receptive and enable the meditations of our hearts, the answer of our tongue, to be acceptable in Your sight. Uh, Take the feebleness of my own lips, and I pray that in my weakness You would make Your strength manifest. Father, that uh, this word would be quickened to our hearts, that it, you would enable it to be preached uh, without, uh, uh, without fault. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I've decided to take a break from the Acts series over the next seven weeks. And providentially, it has just worked out perfect the last three Um, passages and acts have tied in with exactly the kinds of things that Rodney and I have uh, thought needed to be uh, discussed and readjusted. Uh, But I think there is more that needs to be uh, said. On the back of your outline, you'll find the ten pillars of Dominion Covenant Church. Those have not changed. Uh, The chart was made in the early part of the church's history in order to try to make sure that there is some balance uh, in our ministry. It's very easy to focus on one or two pillars and to ignore some of the other pillars, but having the chart and following the chart is an entirely different matter. And so we've just been thinking through some of the ways uh, that Uh, any adjustments we need to make to make sure we are indeed a healthy congregation, that I'm giving a balanced uh, diet to the congregation as well. You can see at the top of the page that the mission statement for our church over the last seven years has been covenanted families promoting and enjoying the dominion of King Jesus over every area of life. I think we've been pretty good at promoting the kingship of Jesus But have we been as good at enjoying the kingship of Jesus in absolutely every area of our lives? I think I do enjoy Christ's kingship over everything. It's something that really drives me and encourages me. But we don't want to take that joy for granted. Our purpose statement under the gospel has been to see our members so secure in God's grace, so knowledgeable in God's law, and so confident in His promises that they are freed from self-doubts to joyful service. And you'll see the words joy, enjoying, joyfully, enjoyed coming up in the various uh, purpose statements under the Christian life, for example. It says to bring individuals and families to joyfully and more consistently live their lives quorum Deo. That's Latin for before the face of God in the power of the Spirit and to God's glory. And so we really do not want our congregation to have a grin and bear it Christianity. You know, that's the kind of Christianity that's engaged in duty, but really doesn't have any joy and vitality. In Nehemiah, it says the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's what uh, gives us enthusiasm in our Christianity, enjoyment of our Christianity. And yet the scripture indicates that there is a context for joy 
And that context is the covenantal relationships that God has put us into. And um, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about community as part of that. We've added home groups to our schedule, not because we're mandating that everybody be a part of home groups. We're not. But we do believe that home groups, especially the way that we've retooled them, remodeled them, are a great place in which to experience the kind of principles we're going to be uh, looking at. And you can actually talk to some of the members of that, the Foxes and Denicuses and Elliots and uh, Dijkstra's and others, uh, Anders, and you could just say, you know, has it been doing what, uh, you know, Pastor Kaiser is saying? Uh, they can be your evaluation. But as we go through this, you could be having in the back of your minds, what would it be like to be part of a small group that really is consistently living out the principles that we're going to be looking at, not only this week, but uh, the next couple of weeks as well. Psalm 133 is a call to biblical community. It's not going to say everything. It's just an introduction, but I think it's an important introduction. David begins by saying, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Uh, when I was growing up, I sometimes struggled with how to relate to others in the body. Uh, temperamentally, I'm an introvert. Now, I've overcome that to a large degree, but temperamentally, I'm an introvert, and I used to be incredibly shy, so uh, mixing it up with other people was hardly my idea of having fun. Uh, it was the exact opposite. And there are probably some here who have this vague suspicion that community is really not something that you uh, need. Um, as maybe a, a recipe for discomfort, and there may be a number of reasons for that. When I went to seminary, there was uh, quite a, 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 what do they call it, a study group craze that was going on, and everybody wanted me to be a part of their study group to help them study. And I'll have to be honest with you, for me, I can get to A to Z ten times faster studying by myself than studying in a study group. And so I only occasionally and reluctantly was a part of those groups. And there may be some of that feeling with you, you know, that you feel you could be a whole lot more productive in your growth in Christ and your growth in holiness doing it by yourself than doing it with the body as a whole. And there could be any number of other reasons why this may not seem to be a pressing concern for you. And I can appreciate that. I can understand where you'd be coming from. But today we're going to be looking at why David believes this is good. This is pleasant. This is something that is going to be an incredible tool in your life, even if you don't see it as being an incredible tool. He says he guarantees it will be. It will be. And actually, there is an irony in the title. It is called A Song of Ascents of David. And it's true that David had finally achieved unity after many years of having a divided kingdom. Now, there were a number of years he was just the king over the southern tribes. Uh, what was it, seven years or something like that? And, and now, finally, they're all going toward the same goal. They're united together. They're working together. But he has absolutely no illusion that there is uniformity. And sometimes people mistake uniformity for community. And for unity, they are quite different things. <clears throat> Somehow they think that, um, you know, community is a group of people who are all the same, have the same interests, same personalities, things like that. But in First Chronicles 11 through 17, David 
after gradually bringing together the tribes of Israel uh, where they have the same goal and because of their focus on the presence of God, they have a tremendous sense of community. He writes, yes, this is a this is a great thing. They're committed to each other. They belong to each other. They have a beautiful fellowship. But let me assure you, there were more differences in Israel than there are in most American churches today. There are quite a few differences that occurred there. In fact, there were so many differences between the tribes that on at least five occasions, it looked like there were going to be church splits uh, under David's rule, uh, where the whole kingdom was going to be busting apart. Whenever the people became frustrated over the lack of uniformity, they broke community. And when they were truly engaging in community, then they in love overlooked the lack of uniformity or they found that to be an asset. And uh, we're going to be looking at how differences can become a tremendous asset in a different sermon. So the irony in this title points us in the direction of what the community is not. First, it is not having similar personalities. You could not have gotten more different personalities than David and Joab. Joab just drove David up a wall, uh, just drove him crazy. You probably remember the phrase that he keeps saying over and over again. What have you and I have in common, you sons of Zeruiah? Do you remember that? Uh, it just drove him crazy what these guys were doing. They rubbed each other wrong all the time. And yet because of their union with Christ, their common basis in the scripture and their common goal, the differences actually became an asset. David simply could not have survived without Joab. There's no way he could have made it without Joab. Joab, as rough as his edges were, was indispensable. And so the first thing I want you to see is that community is not having similar personalities, perspectives, abilities, or necessarily even liking each other. (laughs) Second, community is not found in having identical interpretations of the Scripture. Now, we do pray toward that and work toward that. And uh, Scripture indicates there's going to be a growth over the time of the kingdom toward that end. But if we had to wait till everybody saw eye to eye, then we'd never have community because there would always be some differences uh, that would be out there. And next week, Lord willing, we're going to be looking at Ephesians 4 and seeing how even though there is going to be this growth in truth over church history, that it assumes a community that happens before there is any growth into truth. The community comes first. God puts us into that community. Third, community is not found by linking up with people who are as mature as we are. We're not committed to each other because we're holy. Um, In fact, we're committed to each other because we're united to Christ and Christ loves us, right? Right from the beginning when there's immaturity, we have to be committed to one another. And if that was not true, every time somebody got more mature than us, then there would be a breaking of commitment. I mean, community, right? And so it can't be that. Let's look at verse 1 and let's define community. You can define it through three words there. First, it's described by the word unity. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Scripture knows nothing of solitary Christianity. The moment we are born from above, we are born into a fellowship of community. Um, Now, that was not so with Adam. He was created a solitary creature. But even though he was created perfect, 
God says it is not good that man should be alone. Now, if it was not good for Adam, how much more so is that the case for us? In Psalm 42, David cries out to God because he is so distressed over the fact that he is separated from the kingdom, that he is separated from the community in which he used to have fellowship. It distressed him. It was not good. But here he says that unity is very good. How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Now, that goodness is a declaration of God. It is objective. It is reality. doesn't matter if you're experiencing it or not. It is reality because God says that it is good. It's God's opinion. It reflects the way God is. God was not a hermit. He never has been. He's always had fellowship as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit throughout all of eternity. There has been a community. And the church of Jesus Christ must reflect that. Now, Jesus did say there was none good but God. Intrinsically, God alone has this goodness. But unity reflects... Unity in the church reflects the goodness of God. Now, the word pleasant reflects the subjective side of David, which more and more needs to line up with the objective declaration of God's goodness. Okay, so there is the objective, there is the subjective, what we feel. And God says both need to be present. So why do we feel isolated uh, many times? Uh, Why is it that we resist this call to community? Why do I not find it pleasant at times? Well, the answer is simple. We're sinners. <laughs> you know, we are, uh, have a sinful nature and our sinful nature moves us away from the community, the perfection that God has called us to. Uh, we rebel against that community. Now, we can't totally avoid community or the urges toward that because I think that is a part of God's image within us. Uh, God is a God of community. He continually relates outwardly to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And part of that image is in us. And so a person may be longing for community and yet constantly fighting against that community, doing things that mess up and destroy that community. That's the irrationality of our human nature. But true community is still good, and the more holy we become, the more pleasant that unity becomes. Why? Because there is a correspondence between God's objective declaration and what we are experiencing. So the first part of the definition of community is that it means unity versus isolation. Second part of the definition is the phrase dwell together, or literally live together. We're talking about a physical Togetherness. So we're not just saying, okay, philosophically, we're in agreement. Um, we read the same books. We do the same um, uh, theology. But the Scripture describes Christians as witnessing together, praying together, working together, worshiping together. In fact, if you look up all of the one anothering passages, love one another, uh, minister to one another, all of those types of things, or I think there's over 30 of them. Uh, then you will see that there was a constant contact that people had with each other. There is no community without proximity. And so uh, when a person comes to church uh, uh, late and then leaves early, uh, they're missing out on many aspects of community that God desires us to have. God says it's good, it's pleasant to dwell together and to be in each other's presence. So why don't we feel good about it sometimes? Why do we feel sometimes like we want our space? We don't want to get too close because we get our toes stepped on. 
Well, let me suggest three reasons, and I've already mentioned the first one, and that is that we are uh, sinners, and your sense of community is perverted. Because of that, it needs to be realigned. And so, you should not redefine God's standard based upon what we feel. Instead, we need to allow God's standard of goodness, He declares community to, to be good, to make us realign what we are feeling and what we are experiencing to conform to that standard. And we'll give some tips on how to do that. Secondly, you may be spiritualizing your identity with other believers. Now, it's very easy to have a theoretical unity with everybody. So, yeah, we're part of the body of Christ worldwide. You know, it's very easy to love theoretical people. (laughs) A lot harder to love people who are right close in proximity with you. And your kind of um, theoretical unity may have no relationship with working with people, uh, relating to them and the nitty gritty of life. And when you get together, many times there are sparks, there is dirt, there is the, the, the awfulness of sin in our lives that requires grace. But I tell you, when you experience the grace of God enabling you to love the unlovable, oh, how pleasant is that grace that you experience. Uh, We've been reading the missionary story, Peace Child, on Sunday afternoons, and I sometimes can't keep on reading because I get so choked up, you know, over the awesome things that God was doing in those cannibals. Here they are brought from... uh, I've never seen any culture as bad as that culture in Irian Jaya. Out of cannibalism and out of isolation and seeing treachery as being the ideal into community, the the radical changes that were wrought in their lives. And this community was manifested in incredibly tangible ways. So we can't just theorize. We have to uh, make it concrete. Thirdly, you may feel isolated because you're selective in the relationships that you're willing to enter into. I think that affinity groups are disastrous to Christian community Because they set up an illusion of fellowship that is not based on grace. It's just based on human commonalities. And I've got nothing wrong with uh, nothing against affinity groups. You know, if you want to belong to a quilting club and a chess club in the church and have a hunting club or any other kinds of things where you've got affinity. These are things that you're excited to talk about. That's great. That's wonderful. But unbelievers can have affinity groups. Scripture says unbelievers cannot have community. They cannot have the kind of fellowship that the Scripture says we need to uh, be ushered into. Uh, Community means living together and doing things together because of God's grace and causing God's grace to uh, enabling God's grace to cause us to grow. It's a growth issue. And so the first part of good community is unity in Christ. Second is dwelling together because of Christ. Third, there is brotherhood because of Christ. There is no community without grace. When we are adopted into God's family, we didn't get to choose which brothers and sisters we would relate to any more than in your normal family, you got to choose which brothers and sisters you got to to relate to. And it's not always uh, the case that your brothers and sisters are the most pleasant or easy uh, to get along with. Now, in some families they do become much more pleasant over time. And in the spiritual family, they do need to be getting much more pleasant uh, over time. But uh, uh, that's not the issue. That's not the issue. Um, God calls this family solidarity 
good and pleasant. Objectively, God knows it's good. Subjectively, we can enter into the pleasantness of it. And I think this is such a wonderful definition of community because even in Jesus' literal family, his physical family that he was born into, they didn't always get along. In fact, at one place, the brothers uh, think he's insane. They're calling him crazy. Uh, Brothers and sisters don't always see eye to eye. And yet there is a solidarity that we cannot uh, deny. We need to remember that community is not based on the fact that we love each other. Brothers and sisters, not always nice. They don't stop sinning the instant that they are converted. And they don't always become the closest friends that we could wish that they might be. The truth is they're often cranky and dull and irritating. And we're tempted to reject community with these people because we're doing what makes us feel comfortable rather than operating from the fact we are family. So let's deal with the fact that we are family. And... um, Uh, Once we experience um, true community and true fellowship, we see even despite the fact that there are problems and there are issues, God can do incredible, awesome work through that community. And I think David's um, really motley crowd of 400 people when he started off in the wilderness is a great concept of community and fellowship. There are so many different personalities, so many problems, so many issues, and yet they accomplished incredible things by the grace of God because they had fellowship, they had community. Now, so far, we've seen three things that are needed for healthy, good, and pleasant community to happen. But it's at point C that we need to recognize there is a distinction between community and fellowship. Uh, In some books, you see those used almost like uh, as if they're synonyms, but there really is a distinction. I've put two definitions at the bottom of your outline. Community is the life and relationships that God has ushered us into by our union with Jesus Christ. We are ushered into the community of the Godhead and therefore we are joined to community with each other. Fellowship is our active and full participation in the life of God's community according to the family guidelines of his word. And so community is the context. Fellowship is the activity in that context. So let me just try to pull together some of the threads of thought that we've been uh, dealing with here. Biblical community is not uniformity, maturity, interest, lovability. Instead, it is something that God has created and placed us into. And so the moment you were born again, you were brought into a community. You became brothers and sisters with other believers. Now, you can value it and benefit from it, or you can fail to value it and fail to benefit from it. But the fact of the matter is God has placed you into a community. Now, it's grace alone that can make that community and nothing can break that community. It is grace alone. That's the third point of brotherhood. Community is a relationship. It's a life into which God has ushered us. It's family uh, by grace alone. Now, points A and B indicate that the kind of community that is declared as good and as being pleasant can only be achieved as we work at two things. As we work at unity and as we work at, uh, not fellowship, as we work at um, dwelling together. Okay, so A and B are basically talking about fellowship. What makes community ideal? What makes community work? What makes it good? Because we can never lose our salvation, we can never totally lose community. Um, It's it's always going to be 
uh, present, but if we don't have fellowship, it's not going to be a good community and it's not going to be a pleasant community. Can you see the distinctions there? And so if community is the family of believers, fellowship is our active participation by which God and his people share their lives with each other. It's a sharing for growth. Now, let's move on. Verses 2 through 3 give us the source of this kind of community. He says, It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending on the mountains of Zion. Now, this is a picture of how beautiful God sees this community, this ideal community. It is a lovely thing in his eyes. It is wonderful, like the wonderful fragrance of that perfumed oil that was being poured out upon Aaron's head. And it's precious, just like that oil is precious. It glistens like the dew of Hermon. It refreshes like the dew of Hermon. It is something to be valued, not something to be yawned at and say, well, that's good for other people if they need it, but it's not important for me. God values it. And we need to value it. The second feature that we see is that it, that is the pleasant, good kind of unity, comes down from heaven, just like good oil came down upon his head when that whole bowl of oil was just poured out upon his head. And it comes down just like dew comes upon the grass and upon the trees and upon uh, the mountains. Now, another way of saying this is that it is a product of grace. It's not something we can engineer. You know, you can put all the programs you want together and trying to get people to do things together and you're not going to be able to accomplish the fellowship and community that this passage is talking about. This is engineered by God alone. It is from above. Now, dew and oil are also symbols of the Holy Spirit. So you could say this is a product of the Holy Spirit. This is why it's called the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. It is a gift. It's not an achievement. And even though we play a part in the fellowship, it's really by way of getting our head underneath the oil that comes down. It's by getting ourselves out there on Mount Hermon so that the dew can come down upon us. The third feature here is that the oil flows from the head down to the body. Now, Aaron stands as a symbol of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our high priest, And he also stands as a symbol of the church of Jesus Christ with the head representing Jesus and the body representing the body of Christ, the the church. And so just like the oil came down upon the head, Jesus receives the spirit without measure. But that oil continues to flow down the garments all the way down to the edges. There was a lot of oil that came onto onto Aaron. And you might think that's pretty yucky. Uh, back then, they thought of that as an incredible blessing. And the clothes were stained for the rest of his ministry. Every time a new high priest came in, you got that anointing again. And his clothes then would be marked by the symbol of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, his head is covered and Jesus in turn gives the spirit to his body. So this means if we're to receive a fellowship, it's got to flow from Christ the head just as the oil flowed from the head of Aaron. Now, that implies, in turn, that our fellowship will take on the characteristics of the fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Paul says, For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? 2 Corinthians 6.14 There can't be any fellowship between the two. But, because we're united to the head, the oil that has drenched his head flows down unto us 
and characterizes us, ushers us into the fellowship of the Spirit. In 1 John 1, 7, it says that when we approach the law, not as an enemy any longer, not as a judge any, any longer, but as a saved person united with the body, it becomes a friend. It sweetly ushers us into more fellowship. He says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And so the body of Christ begins to take on the smell of that perfumed oil more and more as it drips down. And so we need to receive the oil of the spirit. We need to receive the dew of heaven. Now, how do we do that? Well, John has already hinted at that in terms of our walking in the light. But there's so many other ways. Again, you look at all of the different uh, passages that talk about the um, uh, uh, doing things to one another, where we exhort one another, we encourage one another, we love one another, we minister, we uh, help people out financially within the body. When we engage in these kinds of activities, he says that he ushers us into that fellowship. And you can't be in fellowship with the body without being in fellowship with God. The two are connected together. And so, in effect, it means that we're getting out of our house and we're camping on Mount Hermon so that the dew can come down upon us. Uh, in one sense, both of those images involve getting out of our comfort zone and into the flow of the Spirit. And the last point that I want to make is that God has given the community and the fellowship for our joy. Verse 3 goes on to say, for there, and that there is referring to the mountains of Zion, to the church, to the fellowship that's ideal, that, that, that community, that unity. It's there in that context that the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. God has called us into the eternal fellowship that will never end. But this incredibly means... We've been ushered into the eternal fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that they have with each other. In John 17:24, Jesus said to the Father, You loved me before the foundation of the world. Okay, relationship back then. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word itself indicates communication. Uh, the Word was with God in, in, indicates a, a relationship. Uh, uh, to each other, being with God. It speaks of fellowship. Acts 2.28 speaks of the joy Jesus experienced in God's presence before the world uh, was made. John 1.18 says of Jesus, He is in the bosom of the Father. This means He's being embraced by the Father to the Father's chest. Now, those are just a few examples of many verses that talk about the incredible fellowship that Father, Son, and Spirit have had throughout all of eternity. And... Here's the clincher. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, We have been called into the fellowship of the Son. The same fellowship that He has, we've been called into that fellowship. This life everlasting, this eternal fellowship has four characteristics in this verse. First, it begins in time. The Hebrew literally is life until forever. Life until forever. In other words, it begins now and it's going to continue forever. Christ didn't just give us life, you know, sometime in the future. He's given to us life right now, the kind of life that he has experienced. He said, I have come that they might have life and that they may have it more abundantly. 
And so we can enter into a small down payment, as it were, and grow more and more into the glorious uh, life and fellowship uh, that we're going to enjoy in eternity. Secondly, that life that starts now and is going to be continuing throughout all of eternity is called a blessing. God's interest is to bless us, not to curse us. Uh, He has called us into community so that we can have joy. Psalm 16 ends by saying this. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Life, joy, pleasures are going to be experienced throughout all of eternity in the future. But the scripture indicates we need to be having that right now. Life begins right now. Uh, in Peter, First Peter, it says that... Um, Those um, saints that he was talking to who were going through incredible persecution were experiencing joy indescribable and full of glory. Well, let me tell you something. When you're in persecution, you can't manufacture that joy on your own. That is something that comes from above. It's something only the Holy Spirit can produce within us. Now, here's the thing for me. If fellowship and community with the body is one of the things that ushers us into that kind of joy, then I want it. I want in on that. Third, that blessing was commanded, not simply offered. When God commands something, it is done. When he commanded, let there be light, there was light. When he commands there to be a blessing, there will be a blessing. And uh, when we put ourselves on Mount Hermon, when we submit our heads to the flowing of the Holy Spirit, the command that comes from God ushers us into blessing. It can't help but have blessing. Now, here's the thing that's really encouraging about that. Who does God command to give the blessing? James says that every good gift comes from the Father. There are other scriptures that indicate every blessing comes from above. So if God is commanding the blessing, the implication is that God is commanding himself to bless us. He is, in effect committing himself, binding himself to bless us when we are taking seriously his commands to be involved in community with each other. And that's a wonderful thought for me. It's an encouragement to pursue the first two verses. Fourth, that command is ushered, as I mentioned, within a community of fellowship. And so it's no wonder to me that J.I. Packer in his little book, uh, God's Words, which is just a a book that defines some of the different words in the Bible, in that book... He says about fellowship that it's not only a means of grace, which it is. When we fellowship with believers, it ushers us into more and more grace. It's not only a means of grace and a gift of grace, but it's a test of grace. What kind of grace do we have? In coming Sundays, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into the blessings that flow from community. But today, I just want to encourage you to seek God's blessing and to realize that blessing comes from entering into community and fellowship with each other. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scripture and the promise of joy and blessing that you have given. And I pray that each one here would more and more experience what it means to be ushered into the richness of the life-giving oil that flows from heaven. Father, may we find a refreshment from above. May we find life from above, encouragement from above, that joy that is indeed our strength. And if there are people here who have tried so many times that uh, they have lost all hope, I pray that you would pour into their hearts uh, a hope even now because you are the God of all hope. 
And so, Father, we pray that Your encouragement would be the encouragement of this Your people. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.